Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of December 10th through the 12th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. It's the end of the year, rest before the holidays. I've got a few projects, both at work and also for podcasting. I'm trying to wrap up to enjoy some free time at the end of the year. Uh, In fact, the week this episode comes out, I'm going to be starting off season three of my Oscars Death Race podcast, where I try to watch every film nominated for the Oscars or die trying. That's about 50 films or so, including the sword films, documentaries, international, and so on. We don't have all the nominees just yet, but I will be doing my best to try to get ahead of the curve by going with likely nominees according to the website Gold Derby. Uh, Those episodes will be coming out in January. Now, a lot of those will overlap with my What I've Been Watching segments, so you'll be able to hear more of my thoughts on those films over there. I'm not going to go in as depth here. Uh, That being said, let's hop into this week's box office numbers, which includes what looks to be another Oscar hopeful. In first place this week, we have Steven Spielberg's adaptation of the Broadway classic West Side Story, the 1961 film version previously won 10 of the 11 Oscars it was nominated for, including Best Picture, and Spielberg hopes to repeat that same success. However, the box office doesn't look like quite as successful as the original, uh, the 1961 version on a budget of just under $7 million, or about $62 million in today's money, uh, ended up with $19.6 million domestically and $44 million worldwide, or about $182 million and $409 million respectively adjusting for inflation. Um, it was the highest grossing film of 1961. Meanwhile, this most recent version looks to be a little bit off-key, if you'll allow that one pun uh, for for this episode. Uh, Spielberg's version, produced by 20th Century for $100 million, made only $10.5 million in its opening weekend in 2,820 theaters, a per-theater average of 3,750. Another $4 million or so abroad puts it sold at just under $15 million worldwide. That being said, eyeball test, you know, this is a bit of a disaster, truth be told. For context, you know, if you remember earlier this summer when In the Heights, you know, another Hispanic-led New York-set Broadway musical that's, a, you know, a bit of a love story, um, you know, facing gentrification and so on, that opened day and date on HBO Max, which numbers were always going to be relatively low, and that one made only $11.5 million and at the time was considered a flop. Um, and that one only had about half the budget of this story with this one with about $55 million or so. So I think we all owe John M2 an apology for how he lambasted uh, you know, in the heights. Um, West Side Story even unperformed the relatively low expectations of box office pros and the studio itself, at, which had put in a number of $13 million here. Another stat worth comparing to, while it did end up outperforming the ill-fated adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen, uh, they had the same Thursday opening preview numbers of $800,000, and while Hansen opened to $7.4 million versus, you know, the the $10.5 million here, um, and, you know, Hansen capped out about $15 million total, that also had a budget of only $25 million or so, so, you know, the loss that we're looking at is also much lower. So what's the deal? West Side Story, like In the Heights, is critically acclaimed with 93% of critics and 95% of audience on Rotten Tomatoes and 86% on Metacritic. And today, you know, as, as of writing this, n- nine nominations from the Critics' Choice Association, one of the, th- the, f- the four films with the most nominations. Like I already mentioned, you know, the original is a much-beloved classic that is critically acclaimed in its own right. And, you know, given the recent passing of Stephen Sondheim, who worked on the original, on the original um, that might have helped drive some interest here as well. 
I think a lot of the same concerns we've been seeing with other adult-skewed films in recent months are coming to fruition here. According to the deadline, 40% of all ticket buyers were over 45 years old, which is a bit of an over-index for that demographic. Uh, it also skewed female, with 57% female, 52% of which were over 35 years old. Uh, this older female demographic tends to be the most reluctant to come back out to movie theaters since the pandemic, especially with concerns of Omicron still floating around. Uh, the highest opening adult skewing drama this year was House of Gucci, uh, which I'll talk about more in my What I've Been Watching segment. Um, and that one was actually bolstered by a younger audience coming out to watch Lady Gaga and Adam Driver. So, you know, these adult skewed dramas actually looking over the entire year, none of, excluding the day and date releases, which also opened lower, no, exclu- no theatrical exclusive adult drama film has opened to more than $15 million this year so far. Um, and that seems to be the, do- the ceiling for the genre, at least for the time being, what more for musicals. There's also the consideration that, you know, perhaps fans who were, you know, people who were fans of the original West Side Story film in 1961 they may have a strong attachment to that and they don't see a need for there to be an update. You know, according to, to reviews, it's not like they changed the setting to be from the 1950s to, you know, the 20, 2000s, 2010s or whatever. It still keeps its uh, 50s aesthetic. Um, and, you know, if you weren't already a fan of musicals, this wouldn't be an, a draw for you if you weren't a fan of the first in the first place. So that all being said, you know, the reason it's not successful, older demographic and so on, and, you know, maybe a bit of a question of who's actually looking for this kind of film. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, though, I don't think it's the end of the road for West Side Story. Now, if you look at a normal multiplier situation, you know, about 3x or so for a critically acclaimed film over the summer, that would peg its final total domestically about $30 million, which definitely is not a success here. However, a number of factors are at play here to maybe extend those legs out a little bit further. First one, this was actually a play by Disney, perhaps, according to reports, that they wanted to have West Side Story out before the holidays, right? However, next weekend, the week right before the Chris, right before Christmas was No Way Home. There's no way they're going to be able to you know, put them out the same day, so they have to essentially put it out today. You know, and kind of like this weekend and next weekend with Spider-Man are going to be essentially previews for, the, for West Side Story before you know, the uh, true holiday weekends of Christmas in New York come into play and help this and hopefully this one pops off with families uh, who haven't seen who aren't going to go see uh, uh, No Way Home now again you know the, and, 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 that, and leading into that is the second point again it's the holiday season for, now for those in the world of the box office this is the season of higher multipliers and smaller drops now, In the Heights and they, Evan Hansen, their drops in the second weekend was 60%. Uh, in the Heights, likely due to being available day and date, uh, they are Evan Hansen for quality reasons. Um, and you know, this is and it is hard to kind of predict what next week's uh, second week drops will be just because of Spider-Man taking up so many screens. Um, but you know, looking at musicals released in December and even just most films in December in general, you see numbers well above the 3x multiplier, even for mediocre films. Um, many Mary Poppins Returns, which in my opinion, pretty average musical. Pretty solid, but not the greatest thing around. Um, in 2018, that had a 6.06x multiplier. Um, a Star of Sworn released a little bit earlier in uh, in not quite December, released in October 2018, but still a musical had a 5x multiplier. Um, Cats disaster that that was, um, you know, still managed somehow a 4.1x multiplier over its sort eight week run. Uh, and that's not even looking at true juggernauts like La La Land in 2016, which had a 10x multiplier, um, or the legendary run of The Greatest Showman, a nearly 20x multiplier. Uh, in, in multiple weeks, months even, of sub-20% drops week over week. 
Now, this is helped by reports, you know, this 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 suspicion is told by reports that Disney secured in their contracts with exhibitors uh, that they have to run West Side Story through at least the end of the year. Now, you know, we've talked about before on the show how, you know, especially HBO Maxos, um, where, you know, they, they they kind of bomb in the first couple of weeks, make less than five, five to ten million dollars, and there's really no audience for it moving forward, that those films end up, you know, losing a thousand theaters in weekend three because it was a two-week exclusive, like a two-week mandatory period to show the film, and then after that, the theaters just jettison the films in order for higher paying stuff coming along. Um, now, you know, with Disney's cloud, though, they were able to secure that West Side Stories will at least make it through New Year's, um, which, you know, I think is when they're hoping that things will pick up, you know, again over the holidays. Um, this is further underscored by its award chances. And, you know, assuming it can keep up the buzz with nominations and even wins at various award shows in the coming weeks and months, there's a good chance that the West Side Story stays in theaters as people, oh, I heard it won the Critics' Choice. Oh, I heard it won, you know, Best Director at the Directors Guild Award or whatever. Let me, I haven't had a chance to go check it out. Let me go check it out. Um, and it'll Saying theaters through at least February, probably March at this point. Um, La La Land is probably the closest analog for this. You know, it never made more than fifteen million dollars in a single week. Um, albeit it did have a gradual rollout with a small number of theaters before you know getting out to I think you know not not even that wide of a release. Um, but it you know it even though it never made more than fifteen million in any single week, it still made above a million dollars for at least fourteen weeks through March in twenty seventeen. After you know peaking in late January around the Oscars period. Now, adding in the final factor that is, this is the Spielberg factor. You know, looking at his films from the last decade or so, he's never had a film make less than fifty million domestic. Um, granted, that was pre-pandemic, but you know, looking at his films as a director over the last ten years, Lincoln in twenty twelve, Bridge of Spies twenty fifteen, The BFG twenty sixteen, Post The Post in twenty seventeen, and Ready Player One twenty eighteen, all of them except for BFG uh, had above average multipliers. With you know the summer blockbuster Ready Player One getting a three point three x, you know, above the three x multiplier average. Um, and Lincoln in this opening in December having a really stellar 7.1x multiplier. So I'm not going to say that West Side Story is completely out of the woods at this point. You know, in terms of profitability, you know, 10 million trying to get to a hundred million dollar, um, you know, budget is is definitely a, 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 a Herculean task, so to speak. Um, but I will say, you know, I don't I don't think it's a hundred percent a flop as of this first weekend. You know, it's a, ta- a little tap premature, um, though. I think concern is well well warranted. I think what's more interesting to think about will be looking forward to the future of you know similar type of films, musicals or adult skewing dramas. You know, you know whether they're going to be coming out more of those in the future. Now, a lot of these films that we're seeing kind of not do that well in this post-pandemic period were approved pre-pandemic. Um, but you know, moving into next year or the in the year after that, do we see fewer adult dramas being greenlit for a theatrical release? Will they see them? You know, maybe the, in the Heights model having a day and date release. We'll talk about another one like that later in the episode. Maybe they just go straight to streaming. Um, if that's the case um, or do they go back to you know really only the Oscar ones and then you know hopefully with the limited platform coming back um, you know with the success of Licorice Pizza you know you see you know um, you know maybe only a, a couple of New York LA and do that kind of like roadshow rollout you know two like less than 10 theaters in the first couple of weekends maybe 50 theaters after that and rolling out um, eventually getting wide you know and then you know who knows if, if that's going to happen but I think you know I, I, I think uh and, and, you know, this is even with top directors at the helm, again, for these Broadway and adult um, dramas. Again, I don't have all the answers to that, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the lukewarm returns of all the musicals this year leading to a pumping of brakes on that genre. And at the very least, I think studios are going to be a lot more strict uh, with their budgets. You know, $100 million for West Side Story is still ridiculous. You know, again, The Year of Hansen was $25 million like that or something like that. Um, 
and in the heights was fifty million. I think that's kind of like lesser lesser for for the the musicals will be what we're looking at. So we'll see how this affects. You know, I think the next one I can think of aside from the Disney live action remakes uh, would be Wicked with John M. Two starring Ariana Grande and Cynthia Erivo. Um, you know, filming I believe next year. So we'll see how that one does. Anyway, moving back to the rest of our domestic top five, in second place also goes to Disney. Encanto in Weekend 3 drops 24%. Very solid. You know, again, it is a kid's uh, family film. Um, makes $9.9 million this weekend in 37.50 theaters, 2,663 per theater average, 71.9 running total to date domestically. Another $80 million abroad puts it at $152 million worldwide, which I believe is in the ballpark of where its budget should be. Uh, Disney Plus releases it in a couple of weeks over Christmas, uh, and of course next weekend's competition uh, makes it. You know, it's unlikely it'll get to a hundred million dollars. I think, but seventy-five to eighty million, I think, would be doable domestically. Uh, third place goes to the Ghostbusters Afterlife, a 31% drop to uh, $7.1 million in 30,815 theaters per theater average of 1,862 and a running total of $112 million. $52 million abroad puts it at $164 million worldwide. Again, it's pacing behind 2016's uh, week four domestic total by about $4 million total, but it also has a stronger drops uh, natural given this season, uh, and so that pace it soon. And if not, and of course, it is also already more profitable uh, than the 2016 version, which again had twice the budget of this one. Uh, fourth place goes to House of Gucci, dropping 41% to $4.1 million in 3,407 theaters for a per theater average of 1207 and a running total of $41 million domestically. Another $52 million abroad puts it at, 90, at $93 million worldwide, bringing past that $75 million production budget should, I think, in the next couple of weeks, make it to at least $100 million worldwide. And then hanging in the top five is Eternals, making $3.1 million for a pretty solid 23% drop in 30-30 theaters for a per theater average of 1040 uh, and a running total of $161 million domestically. $234 million abroad puts it at $395 million worldwide, so it should be able to leg it out to at least $400 million worldwide this week. Uh, that $161 million domestic also puts it ahead of both No Time to Die and A Quiet Place for the fifth place domestic number for now and officially comes to Disney+. Plus. Uh, on January 12th. Uh, speaking of a, a Quiet Place uh, Part 2, it actually also finally was able to get, uh, I think, I believe, actually, no, uh, No Time to Die was able to get ahead of A Quiet Place 2 um, at this point, finally. So I believe the order is 5th uh, uh, Eternals, 6th No Time to Die, and 7th A Quiet Place Part 2. Now, outside of the top five, in some more interesting news, uh, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, somehow has crossed in the profitability range, not counting, you know, theater splits and, and advertising, but it made $30 million worldwide on a $25 million budget. Um, that Christmas movie that was crowdfunded and released last week dropped 71%, expected given its limited run. Uh, King Richard lost 1,200 theaters in its fourth weekend, capping out at about $14 million. Again, day and date on HBO Max, and it's mostly a film for the Oscars. Um, next release, new release rise, we have the embarrassment of SDX's sports drama, National Champions, making about $300,000, not even, you know, in the millions, um, in 1,197 theaters for a measly per theater average of $251 million. It's not, I don't think it's even going to make it to, you know, 500, half a million dollars at this point, and not, let alone make back its $9 million production budget. No reason, no wonder that STX ended up getting acquired. Um, anyway, on the other side of things, though, you know, Red Rocket, uh, Red Rocket, an A24 film about a has-been porn star, uh, made nine hundred, uh, you know, um, porn actor, uh, made nine ninety ninety six thousand five hundred thirty three 
like $96,593 in six theaters for this weekend for a respectable per year the average of $16,099. Uh, not quite licorice pizza in the week four limited run per year the average of $43,000 or so. But, you know, Red Rocket, still respectable. Probably not going to get Oscars nomination, but still. Um, anyway, we also got some other limited releases for award favorites like Don't Look Up from Netflix and Being the Ricardos from Amazon. Uh, I'm not going to go into those numbers in too much detail. And then it also looks like Sang chi has ended its domestic run just side of the 225 million mark at 224.5 million dollars domestic um still sitting at the highest grossing film domestically um at least until next weekend um Let's see. Uh, overall total box office for this week dipped below $50 million for $47 million total. Of course, that is the calm before the storm with Spider-Man No Way Home. Again, currently forecast to be about 200 to $250 million or so based on pre-sales. Um, pre-sales look like, you know, about three days out, according to sources, about uh, $85 million so far, um, with about $55 million of that going to opening day. Um, there's a very good chance, you know, in the next couple of days or so that we see it get to $90 million uh, in pre-sales, which would be nuts because 90 million dollars is basically venom's entire box office weekend um so yeah more pre-sales than than the highest opening domestic box office of the year so far um 100 million dollar pre-sales might be a little bit out of reach at this point but still very impressive nonetheless um as counter programming guillermo del toro's noir inspired film nightmare alley another awards favorite skipped the limited uh rollout a couple weeks ago and will be going wide in about 2500 theaters estimated to, from box office pro to be about three to seven million dollars or so now, before we move to our international numbers, before the, and before the beyond the headlines, before the numbers headlines, and what else I've been watching, a quick word from friends of the show Jeff and Pierre about their various movie-related podcasts. Uh, this week, in light of Oscar's death race coming back, I wanted to highlight those show classic movies live, where they go over films they consider to be classics in the making, which often includes award nominees. I'm sure they'll cover West Side Story in the next couple of weeks. Um, they also have old episodes of other, you know, Oscar award favorite films, classic movies lives, uh, classic in the same feed as well uh, that they're releasing from the vault. So, you know, here's a quick word from Jeff and Pierre. This is Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies that just came out. I'm your host, Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Pierre. Pierre, what movie are we talking about today? Jeff, what are you talking about? We're recording an ad. Oh, is this an ad for Kicking It With Kendrick, the show where every week we bring on a different expert to talk about the filmography of Anna Kendrick? No, no, this is an ad for Losing It Over Leo, the show where we chronologically go through Leonardo DiCaprio's career from childhood to his Oscars. Are you entirely certain this isn't an ad for CML Classics, episodes of Classic Movies Live that we recorded two years ago? Well, I guess it's an ad for all four at this point. Well, you know what? That just works out because you can find all four of those over on the Heatwave Radio channel on Spotify. Nice. In international news, you know, mostly some benchmarks to report on uh, Venom Let It Be Carnage is now at 493 million worldwide. Eternals, as already mentioned, this is at 395 million, so a few million away each from their respective 100 million dollar marks of 500 million and 400 million. Uh, Dune, since it's 390 million or so globally, uh, 283 international and about 106 domestic. So it's going to be about a photo finish or so to get to the 400 million dollar mark. Um, I think awards nominations, another favorite in multiple categories, it should get there. And of course, Spider Man pre sale 
numbers again continue to be crazy, even abroad. Apparently in India, they sold 50,000 tickets in just under three hours at the country's top movie chain, uh, despite an increase in ticket prices setting some sort of record there. And on, on the production side of things, Saudi Arabia's Film Commission yesterday released a number of incentives for feature, documentary, and animated film production, including a 40% cash rebate on qualified spend. Now, in comparison, in the Middle East, uh, Jordan, where Dune and Star Wars Rise of Skywalker were filmed, uh, made a 25% cash rebate incentive. And then the UAE, where Mission Impossible Fallout and Furious 7 filmed, has a 30% rebate. So this is definitely the most generous in the region, and it should be interesting to see if and when studios move productions accordingly. Uh, looking to China, there's still no updates on when No Way Home comes to China, if at all. Uh, industry experts seem to be tending toward a not likely at this point. Uh, we've kind of beaten to death the idea that China is trying to keep a Hollywood film from taking the highest grossing film of 2021 away from Lake Changjin. So I won't go into all that again, um, though the recent U.S. boycott of the uh, upcoming Winter Olympics in China kind of adds more fuel to that fire. Uh, without China, estimates would be about $700 million internationally only, again, not counting your domestic gross, for No Way Home. Um, also relevant to movie news from China, it looks like the popular movie review app Duban is going to be removed from the App Store, um, probably retinker it to be more compliant. Um, it's one of 100 apps or so, be both for quote-unquote vi data violations. Uh, those violations being essentially that it provides a place where online users can discuss more liberal perspectives and opinions that differ from the party line, especially, again, when it comes to Western media. Um, visitors from outside of mainland China are blocked from visiting the app, and the app was fined 1.5 million yuan, about $235,000 uh, for these violations. Um, there definitely have been reports of discontent among Duban users at the continued delay of Marvel movies, so it's just kind of like a, a funny idea that of a potential revolution happening because people can't get their Spider-Man films. Um, anyway, looking at China's numbers specifically from this past weekend, not, nothing too crazy here. Number one goes to weekend two of schemes in the antiquities, 14.5 million U.S. for a running total of 51.6 million. Uh, number two goes to week four of Be Somebody, 9.8 million for a running total of 132.3 million. Uh, week number three is newcomer rom-com Goodnight Being, making 3.5 mi million. Uh, number four are the previews, actually, of animated feature of an animated feature film debuting at 2.6 million. Technically not released yet, though, um, again, these are just previews. Uh, and then Lake Changjin comes in number five at $899.4 million with another $1.4 million, so it should definitely cross that $900 million mark any day now. Uh, overall for the year, China crossed 7 billion U.S. mil. 7 billion US dollars for the entire box office for the year, about 75% of where it was at this point in time in 2019. Um, I wonder if they had let Marvel films in, if that would have recovered a little bit more. Looking beyond the numbers, we got a few shakeups in release schedules. Uh, Licorice Pizza, which has been killing it again in its limited run in New York and LA and four theaters, was originally slated to go wide into 2,000 theaters Christmas Day. However, distributed United Artists is rolling that back to only about 800 screens. Uh, the rationale being that their faith in the film in the more in, in the more traditional platform release, you know, per Paul Thomas Anderson's films have never played in more than 1620 theaters or so. Uh, so despite the weakness in that specialty market, they think that it has faith it'll be able to go the distance. You know, the the other option you know, with that two thousand dollar two thousand theater release on Christmas Day would be it has to do well this weekend, otherwise it's kind of dead in the water afterwards. So you know, this is kind of like a more steady rollout. Um, which you know, a lot of, not a lot of films have been doing post pandemic just because of you know the way that it's been. But I think you know, they definitely have faith in this film to be able to do that. Um, also, tangentially, there's a, a, a report 
an interview out that Paul Thomas Anderson really likes superhero movies, and you know he's he's uh, as opposed to say Martin Scorsese or so, he's welcoming them back, just especially because you know it's bringing uh, butts back in the theater. So, um, yeah. Uh, on the flip side of things, you know, uh, Disney has pulled the Ben Affleck and the Armas erotic psychological thriller Deep Water from January 14th next year. Uh, makes sense given how you know one there hasn't been a lot of advertising for it, and two we just talked about how adult-oriented films that aren't Oscar bait are especially struggling right now. Instead, it'll come to Hulu for domestic streaming and Amazon on international distribution, no date given just yet. Uh, in a similar move, probably spot, uh, spooked by West Side Story, J-Lo and Owen Wilson's musical Marry Me from Universal will be coming day and date uh, on Peacock as well as uh, on its theatrical release date of February 11th next year. Uh, not fully leaving exhibition behind, but again, a bit of a heads here. Uh, Universal also said films starting 2022 will debut on Peacock 45 days after uh, their PVOD releases. So this doesn't impact that 17 or 31 day theatrical window they have in place depending on opening weekend numbers. Um, more so that the window between streaming and VOD purchases um, is now getting a lot shorter. Uh, and then one last fun headline. Apparently in Russia, there was a pretty bad snowstorm in the town of Norilsk, uh, leaving 120 or so moviegoers stranded in a cinema uh, when public transportation and winds you know, shut everything down. So they, they basically ended up having a free overnight movie marathon, which you know, luckily they still had power. Uh, no word yet on which films they ended up watching. Uh, for a final segment with what I've been watching, I have two films I watched, both potential Oscar contenders, so I'll keep it brief since, again, I'm sure I'll talk about them more on my other podcast, if not this week, then in later weeks. Uh, the first one was a potential triple threat, uh, Flea. is an animated documentary from Denmark, so animated feature... Uh, uh, documentary feature and uh, international um, an international feature uh, foreign film uh, produced by Riz Ahmed and Nicolas Costa Waldo uh, following the real life story of an Afghan refugee of 20 years or so. Um, I caught this in the Angelica Film Center here in New York which happens to be right next to my company's office last week when I came in for a team lunch. Um, as far as the film itself I thought it was a good enough documentary you know when you talk about documentaries there's a range from you know on one end the very fact-based informative you know talking heads a lot of them but with a lot of context for the larger framework, and they tend to be more on the educational side of things. Um, on the other end, you have a very personal first-person narrative perspective. Uh, this one leans a little bit more into it's not so much educating you about kind of like the circumstances around everything, but very much kind of live it, go like kind of the live your life in their shoes kind of documentary. Uh, now, granted, I do tend to lean toward preferring the more educational documentaries and the super personal ones. Um, and in the way that this one was marketed, you know, of a of a refugee coming out about a secret he's had for over. 20 years, I expected the secret, no no spoilers here, to be a little bit more impactful than what it actually ended up being. Same with the various LGBTQ elements throughout the film. Um, now, what this film kind of falls apart for me, most of all, is the fact that it's, it's produced as an animated film. Um, maybe I'm just spoiled by other animated films. I do have an anime podcast after all, but, you know, the animation here just was very bland. Um, you know, it, it felt not even quite ro rotoscoped, but very, like, you know, it, it, when you watch an animated film, you know, it's 24 frames per second, um, Animating on the ones is like, you know, animating 24 individual pictures within a given second. Now, that's a lot very expensive and safe for the very high budget type stuff. Um, you know, most, you know, animated films maybe would be on the two or the threes if it's hand-drawn animated. Um, usually the twos. This one felt like it was animated on the fours or even the sixes here, right? So the frame rate with a lot of reused animation here just felt really stilted. Um, and I'm struggling to find reasons why this needed to be an animated film. For me, the best animated films, even those are the very grounded stories, you know, for example, Grave of the Fireflies from Isao Takahata and Studio Ghibli, they use the medium as a means by which to really elevate the story that 
um, in a way that a live action enactment could not do, right? So, for example, um, in, in Aesop Takahata's film, um, Grave of the Fireflies, they just sowed emotions that you really couldn't do in any other other way, um, live action, without special effects. Um, the closest reason I could think of for Flea was perhaps the anonymity element, since it is a true story. Um, and also, there were a couple of flashback moments that were a little bit more abstract, but again, nothing really groundbreaking. Now, that being said, I do acknowledge that the success of this film and the buzz it's getting for awards is the fact that it is an animated film. If it had just been like a talking head, um, you know, produced film uh, about this African refugee story, it probably wouldn't be as renowned as it is now. So overall, I initially gave it a three out of five stars, um, though I've since raised it up to four out of five after watching the next film as a point of comparison. That other film I watched was House of Gucci. Um, now, I actually asked my wife which ones she wanted to see this weekend between this and West Side Story. And as an Adam Driver fan, she chose this one. Um, just some general impressions. You know, it's a very long movie. It's nearly three hours long. Um, like others, many, and many others have said in their reviews, it's, you know, it's trying to be two different movies, it feels like. A more campy send-up of the rich and powerful and a more serious relationship, business drama, thriller type thing. The actors themselves are on the spectrum, right? Adam Driver is all the way on one end, on the very more business side of things and then uh, the it's a me Paolo Gucci played by Jared Leto which is hilarious because my wife says I look like Jared Leto with my pandemic hair uh, and his my name is again Paolo so you know kind of that parallel there um, he's with a ridiculous Italian accent on the other end of the of that spectrum Jeremy Irons Al Pacino and Lady Gaga are somewhere in between varying throughout depending on who they're with um, the length of the movie doesn't really help its pacing. You know, it's wildly inconsistent when it came to the relationship buildup and eventually breakup uh, between Lady Gaga and Adam Driver's characters and the motivations for wanting to get into business. You know, I couldn't quite peg specifically for Lady Gaga what it was he was after, right? Um, especially with the weird psychic stuff going on. Um, I, I bought, also burst out laughing at just how ridiculous their, their sex scene was. Um, I couldn't quite get a, again get, get a read on their motivations for the films, and so it made it feel inv- hard to make it feel invested. Um, to say nothing again about following. The, the business machinations, which they kind of glossed over in a lot of the cases. Um, maybe that's just the business major in me speaking. Um, also, for a film about a fashion brand, you know, the compared to, say, Cruella, um, the outfits and cinematography just didn't pop on screen the same way. Now, to the film's credit, you know, intensely or not, it was at the very least pretty kind of fun. Uh, being able to laugh at the campier elements, especially the accents and the acting and, you know, appreciating the soundtrack ranging from classical operas to Italian version of, of pop song needle drops and, of course, again, those accents. Um, at the end of the day, though, I really don't know what this film is trying to say or celebrate thematically, right? Like, at least with the mess that was Bohemian Rhapsody or even Rocket Man, those biopics at least gave us something to cling on to about this is the, you know, never foretold story about this beloved pop icon, right? Here or not really, right? Like the brand of Gucci kind of transcends these individuals. You know, I don't, maybe I'm just of the wrong generation where I don't really get who the appeal of these individuals and following up, but there's nothing about like what is Gucci the brand. It's more about Gucci the family. And that's really, okay, it, this is a thing that happened. It felt like it would have been better suited maybe because of the length for like a, a primetime, you know, adult uh, prestige TV miniseries or something. Uh, anyway, I gave House of Gucci a three out of five stars. So I could see it being rounded down to two out of five. I just need the bibbidi bobbidi accent of Zero Leader to kind of lose its effect on me at first. Seriously, it's, he's probably going to be nominated for both an Oscar and a Razzie at this point for supporting actor. 
Uh, with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Send me ideas for what else I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review or at the very least tell a friend if any of that helps. Uh, if you're extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which lets me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on, including, again, the Oscars Death Race podcast, relaunching Season 3 this week. Uh, our intro and outro music is Kevin MacLeod, com- uh, his at incompetentalfilmusic.io, edit and production provider by Ninsboy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast, and remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.